Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today, man? Well, it is Saturday morning, the beginning of the Affirmation Conference, which is this week and, and the next. And I don't have the energy and time to go to all these things, but a lot of them are going to be recorded, and I'll just have to make them up later, kind of like I do with General Conference sometimes. Well, that's great. And you're, uh, are you going to be at a, an event today? Are, is your panel today? No, it is next Saturday. So Next Saturday. Okay. The week I wasn't that aware people, it was going to yeah. be spread over multiple weekends. Right. It's over multiple weekends. Well, all right then. All right then. So your thing is next weekend. That's great. Right. And Are you going to check great. out any of these? Uh, there were two that... There were at least two sessions that are going to emphasize the intersection with with people of color and right. people of the global majority outside of North America and Europe. I know I've seen one of those flyers, so I'm hoping to uh, be able to make a little appearance into one of those because, yeah. Awesome. I also want to see what they're talking about in that leadership track. I, I just want to see what they're telling the bishops and the stake presidents and other ecclesiastical leaders who have to deal with this stuff. I just, I just want to know what they're saying. Right. I want to be there for that, too. Is that today? That is today. I also wanted to uh, acknowledge, since uh, as of this recording, it is September 11th, just wanted to uh, see if there was anything we uh, felt to say before we went into the uh, episode content. Uh, Derek, is there anything you want to uh, acknowledge for uh, September 11th? Right. I want to bring up some of the stories that people might not know. The first one is that of Father Michael Judge. He was a firefighter, a fire department chaplain, a Franciscan, really all-around great guy, did a lot of service to the community. He did ministry among people living with HIV. He did ministry among those experiencing homelessness, and he rushed into the North Tower to minister to rescuers, survivors, victims uh, on September 11th. And what people might not know is that he was gay. And I just want to lift up him. There's a movement among some Catholics to canonize him. A lot of people would want to see him canonized for everything that he's done. It's uh, something that at least, at, you know, 20 years ago, we weren't where we were now. We're still not where we need to be. But 20 years ago, it was very different for gay folks. And... Um, and just to have someone who is a gay icon, saint, a living saint, doing all this work and then and then giving his life for those who are, or to give his life in the process of serving those in need is a big testament to the, the qualities that make a gay person exactly what this world needs. Do you have any thoughts? You know, just something I was forced to think about this week. Um, you know, xenophobia, Islamophobia, that still exists in the country because of 9-11. Um, just, just this week, there have been at least two uh, sick immigrants, S-I-K-H sick 
immigrants killed in uh, North America. One of them was right here in Harlem. And uh, that's to say nothing of the the racial profiling, uh, you know, the Islamophobia, the xenophobia that South Asians, uh, folks of Middle Eastern descent and also North Africans experience in this country because of 9-11. I don't feel like we really give enough attention to how 9-11 has changed the lives of uh, so many of our siblings uh, from those nations, siblings in the Sikh faith, siblings that are uh, Muslim, and uh, just how much their lives have been rattled by by this whole experience. I'm uh, I'm a little disappointed that a place like, uh, you know, Union, where I'm at school, that it's on uh, the front lines of a lot of this stuff. We don't have any events to really acknowledge this or minister. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that uh, they've asked very much, having, sense, having seen that on campus. Uh, they basically just asked that we pray for Muslims, Sikhs, and all others who have been impacted by the events of 9-11 and who, uh, you know, fear for their lives as the 20th anniversary approaches. I I would just ask that folks, uh, you know, talk about this with each other, hold each other accountable to think long and hard about our commitment to to, uh, these communities and uh, our responsibility uh, to these communities. Mm, Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult to it's easy to to think that oh I'll just use force to stop something, but as we'll see later with Zion's camp, using violence to solve a problem causes second order and third order problems that you may not have anticipated. And people would even say, well, well, you know, World War Two and the Civil War, those had you know those did good things and. There's a sense in which the Lord can make good come from evil, but I don't think that war itself ever is divested of the evil that it is. And so much of World War One and World War Two set us up for the problems that we are experiencing in the Middle East today and all and around the world today. And so it's a sense in which, yeah, these wars to end all wars, which is what World War One was supposed to do, didn't didn't do that. And we will see that in Zion's camp that violence never does what it promises to do to bring an end to violence because then you get cycles of retaliation and people trying to even the score or people trying to claim self-defense or all these other things that... It, that to me are inconsistent with what I think Christ taught during his ministry on earth here. So the, I want to move on to talk about, I don't know if you've ever seen, I've never seen this in person, but I've seen pictures of the 9-11 mor- memorial in, uh, in New York. And there's this quote from Virgil, it is attributed correctly to Virgil, that says, no day shall erase you from the memory of time. And this is a quote from Book 9 of Virgil's Aeneid. And this is used, and it has been used for thousands of years uh, in a funerary and memorial sense of, oh, let's memorialize people and make sure that we don't forget them. But what a lot of people don't know is the original context of this text. Well, first of all, do you know the the memorial that I'm talking about and the, the big sign that says no... Day shall erase you from the memory of time. 
Yeah. Okay. So what it is is here here I'm going to quote it for you in the Latin and then translate it. Fortunati ambo sequid mea carmina possunt nulla dies umquam memori vos eximet aivo. And that is in English, happy pair if my poetry or song has the power no day shall erase you from the memory of time. And this you is plural. And guess who it's referring to in its original context? I'm guessing that it's... Uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. What is this uh, couple that you just sent me? Uh, yes. Nisus and Uriolus. Yeah, about to say. They're the ones with the statue, right? Right. So, okay, Nisus sure. and Uriolus were Trojans, but they were uh, same-gender lovers who fled Troy after the Trojan War and made their way to Italy. Uh, but they were same-gender lovers. They uh, were killed in battle, and Virgil memorialized them uh, for their heroism, their, uh, their self-sacrificial love, all these other things. And so Virgil basically was saying... My poetry, if it stands, will make sure that the, this couple never gets forgotten. And that, I think, is one of the biggest things that people who are grieving want to remember is that their loved ones will never be forgotten. And that's why this ended up on uh, at the 9-11 memorial. But anyway, I just wanted to point out two gay connections with September 11th and... Well, now we can. Now people know, and now we can move on to the "Come Follow Me." Uh, before we go ahead and uh, go into the "Come Follow Me," just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting uh, podcasts who promote uh, thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 102 to 105 today. Uh, these mostly cover uh, Zion's camp, the uh, uh, law of consecration, particularly the dissolution of the, of the United Order when we get to 104 and 105, and also uh, church councils in section 102. Uh, we can talk about these each in greater detail as we go through the sections. So I guess we'll start with uh, section 102. I don't really have too much to say about church councils, so I wanted to see if you had anything to uh, discuss with regard to section 102, uh, Brother Derek. Sure. Let's talk uh, really briefly. I know that brief is relative when I start talking, but uh, yeah, section 102, especially verses 5 through 17. It says, the accused in all cases has a right to one half of the council to prevent insult or injustice. And the counselors appointed to speak before the council are to present the case after the, after the evidence is examined in its true light before the council. And every man is to speak according to equity and justice. Those counselors who draw even numbers, that is, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, are the individuals who are to stand up in behalf of the accused and prevent insult and injustice. And what we're talking about here is 
the context of church trials where they have 12 counselors draw numbers and the evens speak up on behalf of the one who is accused and all of them, not just the even, are supposed to speak according to equity and justice. Now, I want to just name that equity and justice are values in our scriptures, in our Latter-day scriptures. And I think yes, so many people forget this when they want to idolize particular opinions of the brethren. They forget that there are checks and balances in our community and in our, in our scriptures that our primary loyalty is to Christ who stood for equity and justice and not to a particular personality or leader. And this is exactly what happened with the Corinthians in first, oh, now I started talking about the Bible, that's gonna make it long. But anyway, forget that. I'm just gonna say so much of the problem in Corinthians was about, or so much of the problem addressed by Paul to, in his letters to the Corinthians was cults of particular personalities. And like, this should not be so among us. We need to have equity and justice rather than a particular favorite elder or whatever as our touchstone for figuring out what we're doing. And in all cases, we are supposed to prevent insult and injustice. And we've got a lot of injustice here in the church. But I, I just wanted to name that, without going into too much more detail, that section 102 and our, the rest of our Latter-day scriptures talk about church organization and the way it should be aligned. What, do you have any thoughts? Not really. I, uh, I, read this, I read this section and listen to you talk about it, and I think to myself, that sounds beautiful, and this is how it should be. Yet, unfortunately, the highest profile cases of excommunication in the church, they don't seem to go like this. I know there's discipline councils that function closer to what we see written here, but we don't really hear about those. And even still, I feel like the way too many discipline councils are used is usually a misuse of power to the end of getting people to conform to oppressive systems in a way that may already feel oppressive with the power dynamics of gender and orientation in particular, and possibly others. I, I admittedly didn't look into discipline councils all that much for today's discussion, but I think it's worth further conversation, assuming I'm right about that relationship between what we see written here in 102 and what is what is actually practiced. Right, and another thing is to think about where the authority is. A lot of people say, well, we, we're just going to defer to our leaders and they're going to make all the decisions and do all the thinking for us, but that deprives us of the very heart of the gospel, which is to find out for yourself. And we never have in the scriptures leaders, true leaders saying, oh, we'll just take my word for it. True leaders seek to persuade and lead and bring people along in a way that preserves their agency and autonomy and helps them develop responsibility and leadership themselves. People who just let the leaders spoon feed them everything will never develop the celestial qualities that are expected of the people of God. And we'll see this with Zion's camp is that's the qualities they didn't develop. And so they failed. 
so yeah, let's move on to talking about Zion's camp. What are your thoughts? I know that you don't like camping. <laughs> You're right about that. I, I am not a fan of camping, not at all. Um, did you ever see the church history DVD about Zion's camp from like a decade ago? Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. Okay, I'm sure it's available on YouTube, so I'll just go ahead and put it in the notes if anybody wants to refer to it afterwards. I was looking for uh, a few things. I was I was looking at um, why Zion's camp failed and why the Lord allowed the saints to be persecuted. We discussed it a little last week when the Lord indicated that uh, even if he did protect the saints, they uh, they still wouldn't have been in a place to build Zion. And I was hoping to get a little more detail behind this. I did find something in the beginning of uh, 103 that was specific to these saints, but it also read like a, uh, like a, like a prescient warning to us. So let me just get to it. This is going to be verse three and four with the Lord explaining why he allowed uh, their persecution first. This is three. For I have suffered them thus far that they might fill up the measure of their iniquities that their cup might be full, and that those who call themselves after my name might be chastened for a little season with a sore and grievous chastisement, because they did not hearken altogether unto the precepts and commandments which I gave unto them. Now we know many of these commandments. The uh, law of consecration was a big one, and uh, we'll get into that one more once we get into uh, section 104. Uh, But this is the prescient part I wanted to get to, and it's in uh, verses 7 through 10. And by hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord their God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdoms of the world are subdued under my feet, and the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. But inasmuch as they keep not my commandments and hearken not to observe all my words, the kingdoms of the world shall prevail against them. For they were set to be a light unto the world and to be the saviors of men. And inasmuch as they are not the saviors of men, they are as salt that has lost its savor and is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. So let me tell you the warning I hear in these, uh, these verses. And it's something that's been primed by many of the discussions that we've had over the years concerning the gospel as, uh, as an instrument of justice and uh, social progress. If the church doesn't have anything to offer to the most urgent and important issues of the day, then it's not relevant. Last Sunday, I walked my black self to the heart of black as hell Harlem to get to church for fast and testimony meeting. And the first thing I noticed when I walked in was the dearth of black folks. There were more than there were more than the average ward. But again, this is Harlem. No black folks seated on the stand. Not very many seated in uh, the chapel period. And as I expected, nobody said anything about our our social situation in their testimonies. No one talked about the Jesus that sees the neighborhood we built our church in the middle of. Now, perhaps that could be a conversation this ward has already had or attempted to have, and uh, the reality of who they are, where they are, may not be lost on them. But I, I didn't get that impression looking at or listening to the congregation bear their testimonies. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, as a church, we are set to be a light unto the world and to be saviors of men, salt of the earth. The restored gospel enables us to be all of these things, but who is looking to us for light? Who is looking to us for salvation? Because the Harlem neighborhood is clearly not. 
Most black people are certainly not. Many members of the LGBTQ community are probably not. Salt preserves and salt enhances flavor. What are we preserving? What are we enhancing the flavor of, if anything? We tell people to bring the truths they love to us and we'll see if we can like add anything to it and enhance it in any way. What are we doing? How are we doing that for people now? And to switch gears a bit to the previous verse, what does it mean for the kingdoms of the world to prevail against the church? Now, I don't know that this is necessarily what the saints in Missouri are experiencing at this point in time or any kind of violence. I don't think that uh, is necessarily the form this prevailing is always going to take or even most of the time going to take. But I believe this is rather us or at least one form that this can take is us being overtaken by truths that we refuse to accept, like the humanity of queer folks. We saw hints of this in the uh, desperation of Elder Holland's words at BYU a few weeks ago. That school runs the risk of losing either its funding or perhaps its accreditation because they're torn between honoring the scholarship and academic integrity of faculty members bucking certain conventions of the church and honoring their benefactor's definition of upholding traditional family values and church doctrine, which, to be frank, is bigotry in this particular case. Elder Holland, if you really think about it, could be said to be encouraging BYU to sell its academic birthright for a mess of bigotry pottage. But uh, to bring it back, I, I feel like the Lord's words here are a warning to us in this generation to keep his commandments, though to be fair for us to really get it, this generation, for us to really get it, um, we have to understand what those commandments are and how to live into them. And I don't know that the folks who need to hear this warning most are going to be able to accept that queer affirmation is part of that. I don't know that they're going to be able to hear that. But uh, bridging that gap is uh, perhaps a conversation for another day. So um, I, I think I'll end my immediate thoughts on these verses here. Yeah, and there's a lot of commandments that we're not following as a people. And there's a lot of ways that we could be, how was it phrased, the saviors of men? Correct. That we're not. And my, yes, there's the ones that we usually talk about, racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, and those. But what about concerning care for creation and the environment? That mm. is one way we could absolutely be saviors of people. And the second thing is with the vaccine mask thing like i hope i'm not going to be talking about this on the podcast for the next 20 years like i don't even know how long this podcast is going to last but i don't want to be talking about vaccines and masks for another year and i think this shows part of the failure of our leadership in the church and in america generally is that we haven't done enough to cultivate an understanding of our obligation to love our neighbor as ourself and wear masks and get the vaccine and all these other precautions that are done in a literal pandemic. And so we have this uh, virus multiplying, but we also have misinformation multiplying and that actually might be the worst, thi worst thing. And our leaders haven't done enough. Now, you might be saying, well, yeah, they did a photo op with President Nelson, who's a physician, getting his vaccine. And they've, you know, made some statements about vaccines. But the statements they've made about vaccines have been as effective as their statements against racism. It, they haven't really done much. Like, among 
right. Latter-day Saints in America. And I don't know how Latter-day Saints are in the rest of the world with vaccines. Uh, that they may be better than we are here in America. But in America, we've got a big problem. Yeah. And this yeah. has been fueled by a lack of moral and intellectual leadership among our leaders for generations. And that is the reason why President Nelson can come out and say, get a vaccine, and then half the church in America doesn't do it. And why? It's because our leaders have cultivated an anti-intellectualism for generations that now they are reaping what they have sown and can't get the people to do something that is basically uh, obvious. And our leaders have cultivated things like... um, They've cultivated a culture where conspiracy theories can blossom. They can cultivate a culture where personal gut feelings can trump reason and facts. And this has led to so many problems in the church. And this, uh, this business about vaccines is just one manifestation of this big iceberg that happens when you fail to lead your people into having a theology that has a reality check built into it. I don't know if what I'm saying makes any sense, but the fact that they're trying to to say, oh, we want you to get vaccines, and we really want you to get a vaccine. Well, what what would happen if the leaders of the church said, you know what? God's people are always going to be stubborn and not going to do what they're supposed to. So we're going to start taking away the temple recommends of people who refuse to get vaccinated or spread misinformation about the virus, right? When you That's how you know when they take it seriously. Yeah, they make statements against racism, but I've never heard of anyone denied access to the temple because, because of, of their racism. Yeah. Are we going to be a light to the world if we tell the world that we're more mad about coffee than racism? Now, I don't think that church discipline or access to the temple is the ideal way of solving behavioral problems in the church because that can lead to injustice, which we see have seen in one, section 102. There should be safeguards, reality checks, checks and balances in place to make sure that we don't have tyranny of individual personalities over actual justice and equity. Right. right. But anyway, that's my point about being a, a celestial people, a Zion people, and we haven't lived into that. Nah. Got some work to do there. Got, some, got a lot of work to do there. And that's okay. Like, I, I'm trying to get into this practice of, you know, giving some more grace where necessary, but also, you know, holding us accountable to you know what we say we are as a church and what we ought to be as a church like um you know as a person i got plenty of flaws but i also know that at the end of the day i'm going to be held responsible held accountable for those flaws i gotta i gotta fix those things and i uh i I want that i really want the church to live into what it says it is especially in this regard because we should be a light to the world. We should be saviors of men. We should be the salt of this earth. And I'm tired of, uh, you know, feeling like I'm a part of a church that just isn't those things. Is there anything else in uh, section 103 you wanted to, uh, that you wanted to highlight? No, but I still want to talk about Zion's camping connection with section 105. Are we ready for that? Yeah, let's go ahead. 
So I'm going to read the first five verses. So here's what happened. We had some revelations earlier, section uh, 103, section 10, was it 101? I'm not sure exactly now. Uh, I think it's talking about the troubles in Missouri and that the Lord is calling God's people to liberate or redeem the uh, settlement in Jackson County. Now, I'm not sure. So, so remember how I'm committed to pacifism. And in my heart, here's what I want to be the case. What I want to be the case is that the Lord told Joseph and his people to do something, and they did not implement it correctly, but did their own thing on it and tried to liberate Jackson County by military armed force. Now, there is military language in these revelations, right? But I'm, I would like to think, and this is where my bias creeps into interpreting the text, I would like to think that God wasn't actually talking about physical bloodshed. In fact, if you look at section 63, where it talks literally about uh, Zion in, in Missouri, uh, verses 27 through 31, emphasize that Zion should be a- obtained by purchase and that we are forbidden to shed blood in the process of obtaining the Zion lands. Um, But anyway, so let's go back to section 105. Here's what it says, verse 1. Verily I say unto you who have assembled yourselves together, this is the Zion's camp people, let me just back up and say this is, section 105 is the section that disbands Zion's camp and said, you did this wrong and we're going to not do it the way that you thought. And my interpretation of section 105, again, is that the Lord is telling them at the last minute that violence is not going to solve their problem. In fact, violence here would have been damaging and devastating for God's people because they were outnumbered by what could have been a legal and lawful militia of people in Missouri defending themselves from an outside uh, force, right? If you look at this from the position of the Missourians, they are going to claim the right to self-defense, which is why I have a problem with self-defense as an, as an excuse for everything we do, um, it, violence. Uh, I can't recall any time in the New Testament where Christians are permitted to kill others in self-defense, In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, and fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Like, we're not supposed to be afraid of dying. We would rather die than betray God. And that's that's my view of of what a nonviolent Christian people should be, that we would rather die and say, well, yeah, if you kill me, God's going to raise my body. That That's fixable. But the corruption to my soul by cooperating with evil and getting down on its level, kind of like, I love what Michelle Obama said, right? When they go low, we go high. Ugh. Jeez, okay. And... <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, okay. I struggle with that, man. I struggle with it. Right? When they, when they, you know, um, 
when they go low, we go high. And I, and the reason why we do that is because there's something more important than preserving our bodies. And that's preserving our souls. That's why we go high. It's not because nonviolence will always be successful in it strategically. Sometimes it won't. But it will be successful in maintaining our celestial Zion character. And I think that's the thing that we will take with us into the next world. The, 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 I love, that's why I think the doctrine of resurrection is central to our theology, is that it puts everything in proper perspective with its priorities. But let me go back now to section 105. It says, I say unto you who have assembled yourselves together that you may learn my will concerning the redemption of mine afflicted people. Behold, I say to you, were it not for the transgression of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals, they might have been redeemed even now. Let me pause and say, it talks about the transgressions of my people speaking concerning the church and not individuals, which goes to this understanding of collective transgression, which a lot of people deny, I think more so because of American culture than from anything in the scriptures, because there is a sense in which what happens to one person happens to all of us if we are one body. I've used this before. If I stub my toe, I don't. my brain doesn't go to my toe and say, whoops, too bad for you, it didn't hurt me. No, my brain feels it too. My entire body feels it if I stub my toe, which is why I don't understand Elder Holland's point of view. He's basically saying, whoops, we can sacrifice and amputate part of the body of Christ and say, whoops, too bad for you, I, I, I can't help you, too bad. And he thinks that he's exempt from what that does to the entire body. That reminds me of this image of a boat. Pretend that we're in a boat and there's a hole in one end of the boat. And the boat is sinking because of the hole in one end. And look at the people laughing on the other end of the boat saying, ha ha, the hole's in your end of the boat. That makes sense. It doesn't make sense to laugh and say, well, the hole isn't in my end of the boat. And I think that is what straight people in the church are doing. Especially, this is epitomized by Elder Holland. Perfect example. He's like, whoops, I don't know what to do for, for LGBTQ folks, but it's not going to happen to me. No. Like, he is looking at the LGBTs and saying, well, you, the hole's in your end of the boat, but I'm okay. Folks, listen to me. Elder Holland and all the straight people in the church, you're not okay. You can't be saved without us. If you right. think you're going to have the right. last laugh and say, well, well, we're going to be exalted and I don't know what's going to happen to you, we're all getting there together or we're not getting there, right? And so this is just as much about the liberation of straight folks as it is for queer folks to get justice for my people. Like, straight people can't be who they are and who God meant them to be as a celestial people if they are addicted to straight supremacy. It affects us queer people, obviously, very differently, but it affects straight people, too. Anyway, let's go to verse 3. But behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands, but are full of all manner of evil and do not impart of their substance as becometh saints to the poor and afflicted among them, and are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. 
this is exactly why Zion's camp failed. It's because of the failure of the people to do exactly what I've been saying, to take care of those who are marginalized in the church, the poor and afflicted among the church, because there's some people at, who were well off who said, you know what, the hole's in your end of the boat, I'm not gonna help you. And then the whole boat had a problem. And then verse five says, and Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise I cannot receive her unto myself. I wanted to add my testimony to what you said to uh, straight folks, something like, you're not going to get there without us. That is scriptural. We, we see that with uh, Peter and then Joseph Smith quoting him with regard to our dead. And uh, we also uh, have the life and teachings of Jesus Christ that show us that we're not getting into heaven if we don't uh, learn how to treat the least of these properly. The, uh, the Lord alludes to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in section uh, 104, verse 18, to basically say that denying the poor and the needy their due while we have an abundance will put us right in hell. Uh, just want to add my witness to yours that we ain't getting celestial glory without each other. This idea of communal blessing and communal sin, that too, that's also scriptural. We're conditioned as a, uh, as a people and uh, this is very much an American idea to view ourselves as individuals more than we're conditioned to view ourselves as a community or part of a community. And consequently, we're less likely to see ourselves as responsible to, for, or a part of our community, which is ultimately what too many saints didn't see. Not every saint failed, uh, not like not every saint failed to live the law of consecration or impart of their uh, substance to those in need, but many did. And as a result, the Lord deferred Zion for everyone, presumably because significantly more people needed to be on board if Zion was going to work. That's why it's so important to hold folks accountable. Other people got to get right if we're going to be able to build Zion. It's like a, it's like a giant group project. Like all, the rest of us could be doing our part, but we'll ultimately fail if other people don't do theirs. And you know, that kind of sucks, but that's why you got to check in with them to make sure they're doing their part. But anyway, as you said, that kind of stuff, that led to uh, not just the building of Zion being deferred, but also uh, the United Order being dissolved that we read about in section 104. The only uh, thing I wanna add is that the uh, commandment to build Zion, that, that part is still in effect. We are still in this, uh, quote, little season until we learn to follow the principles of the law of consecration and other celestial principles. Zion is postponed so long as we postpone Zion living. Uh, and, you know, economic justice is a big part of that. The Lord goes over that in section 10417. Uh, the earth, he says, is full and there is enough and to spare. Yea, I prepared all things and have given unto all, given unto the children uh, of uh, men to be agents unto themselves, close quote. You could even argue that uh, food security is a right inscribed into the creation story in Genesis 1, 29 and 30. Uh, but anyway, until we figure that out, among other, thing, uh, among other things, Zion is uh, gonna have to wait. You get this sense from our periodicals, our media, our general conference talks, that we are as a church are what we call in New England, we're all set, that we're doing well, that we are basically doing what we're supposed to, we just need to do more of it. 
And so I think this is a problem. A lot of people will say that I'm criticizing our church leaders, but I have more criticism for our church as a people. And I'm realizing that in many ways, our people are holding our leaders back from being God's best. Right? And I think, yeah, there's so many places in all of our standard works where God is criticizing us as a people. And so how are, how are, how are people saying, well, well, Derek, you're criticizing the church. Well, duh, that's what God did. How, that's what half the scriptures are. Well, actually, more. It's probably 90% of the scriptures are God telling God's people uh, criticisms, right? I mean, there's also, com- I shouldn't have said 90% because there's a lot of comfort wrestled in there. But, so I wanted to talk about this. And so my, my model for, for leadership is, well, let's look at Moses, who is the prototypical leader of God's people in the Torah. Moses made some big mistakes. And one of them was the mistake in Numbers chapter 20 that got him excluded from inheriting a place in the promised land, which is the whole point of leaving Egypt, the whole point of their 40 years in the wilderness. He didn't even succeed. And this is very much a Zion's camp type situation, is Moses didn't even succeed in the for himself the thing that he was called to do at the burning bush. He didn't succeed because of his mistake in failing to implement God's will directly. And people are going to say, well, prophets are prophets and they're official and they're spokesmen for God and they can do no wrong and they're, they're always right. And I'm like, no, you haven't. Have you never read? I, you know, I love it when Jesus says, have you never read? Have you never read in Numbers chapter 20 where Moses made a big mistake implementing God's will. God told Moses to speak to the rock and water will flow forth for the people. And Moses struck the rock out of a lack of faith in some way. I mean, the text isn't clear exactly what was wrong with what he did, but it's very clear that it is a rejection of faith in God's power and God's name. And because of that, Moses was excluded from inheriting land. And remember, in the Torah, it was all about the land. You don't have in the Torah this understanding developed of of an afterlife or an exaltation or any of these other things. The whole point, for all they knew, that this world was the only world, as from what we see in the Torah. And so for them, inheriting the land was the goal. And... Uh, yeah, and I think this is this very clear what what's a very clear parallel as to why we couldn't inherit Jackson County County Missouri at the time is people I think did what Moses did and assumed that God wanted us to take the world by force. We marched down uh, I, I imagine that the, these people marching all the way from Kirtland to Jackson County are like these people who marched into the, the Capitol, like literally into the Capitol building on January 6th. Like people who think that they're going to be able to get their way through force rather than through nonviolence. And this leads to, I think, science camp was a failure and God prevented it from being a bigger failure by 
by by stopping it right at the last minute. But what do I do with this failure? And I think that's where we where we have to sit with it. There's you can do some option one thinking and say, oh no, there's no problem here. There's no crash. It all is, and this is something that we do so much in the church, is it's our instinct to distort the narrative until it's faith-promoting. And so there's a lot of faith-promoting thinking that has accumulated around Zion's camp that, oh, it was necessary for this, or it uh, helped train the next generation of leaders, or it helped us to cross the plains later, like it did all this other stuff, and so, yay, there's no problem. Yeah, don't even look, don't look behind the curtain. But I think real theologians with spiritual maturity have learned to lean into the discomfort and sit with, and just sit with it. Sit with the discomfort and don't, don't ignore it. Don't deny it. Sit with it like Job. And, and then just, yeah. We, we have to sit with the fact that Zion's camp was a failure and we can't, have a neat little trick to make it prove the church true. Right? And it's so ingrained in our culture whenever something bad happens today. Like, oh, when uh, when the um, November policy happened in 2015, there's a, was an immediate thing, uh, response to make it faith-promoting. Like, oh, it's just to protect children or whatever. Uh, or you'll see this with people trying to wrestle over the dispossession of black folks in the church. They'll make it faith promoting in some way. Aren't, doesn't that bug you? Yeah, I was like, I was thinking of that just now. I'm just like, y'all are really going to spin this into a positive faith promoting thing? Like, like even Randy Bot couldn't couldn't get away with that, you know? Yeah. Just right. We need to sit with the fact that we did major injustices for no reason. Uh, and, and we're still doing major injustices for no reason. And, it, and it's we don't get to jump to the faith-promoting result. We just need to sit with it like the, the fact that Moses really messed up. Joseph really messed up. Elder Holland really messed up, right? And I really messed up. There's going to be times where I'm going to, I have messed up big time and I'm going to, right? And that's why... Um, let me just, oh, I'm talking too much, but I wanted to look at this article called We Also Marched, The Will, the Women and Children of Zion's Camp by Andrea G. Radke. And I think this is really great because we don't often center the stories of women. And so we're going to, we're going, I'll, maybe we can post this article somewhere so that people can read it. Okay. But I think... That and, uh, and there's also a book out about the Mormon battalion as well. The women in the in uh, among the Mormon. Let me see what's the title of that book. It is um, it is the women of the Mormon battalion by Carl V. Larson and Shirley N. Maines. And so we've got some some good resources about the role of women in these paramilitary. Is expeditions and there's a number of women here I would just want to briefly touch on the story of Nancy Holbrook so Nancy Holbrook was a convert uh, along with her husband and she was at first resistant to the church when her husband was investigating but then she 
decided to research it more and she became convinced that Mormonism was true. And then what happened is she was baptized and a lot of other things, but to make this, this story short, she went along with her husband and her husband's brother and her sister-in-law by marriage. Uh, well, it's her brother-in-law's wife. I don't know what you call that. I guess a second, I don't even know what you call that, but anyway. So the two, uh, uh, it was the two Holbrook brothers and their wives, okay? These are all the Holbrooks. And they went along, both couples, and uh, some of their kids as well, went to Zion's camp. And it turns out at the very last minute at the Salt River, we have a very interesting thing where the women actually push Joseph into inclusion. And what happened was Joseph at first said, we're going to leave the women and children behind while we're going to take the men into a very dangerous place uh, because there could be violence and or, uh, there probably will be uh, a massacre. And so we're going to leave the sisters behind at the Salt River. And then apparently there's evidence that the women protested and say, nope, we walked all this way. We're going all the way into this battle if there is one. And then Joseph apparently changed his mind and declared that if the sisters were willing to undergo a siege with the camp, they could go along with it. And this is uh, at least what what Brother Holbrook is, is recording. So I like the fact that we had women who were able to say, look, you're leaving us out of this. And they were able to hold hold Joseph accountable and, and articulate their needs and speak in such a way that Joseph had to listen. But anyway, the last thing I want to say about Sister Holbrook is this interesting narrative by Heber C. Kimball, which we have in his, his writings. Here it says something interesting. Quote, My first attempt at washing my clothes took place at Salt River. My shirts being extremely dirty, I put them into a kettle of water and boiled them for about two hours, having observed that women who washed boiled their clothes, and I supposed by doing so, they boiled out the dirt. I then took them and washed them, endeavoring to imitate a woman washing as near as I could. I rubbed the clothes with my knuckles instead of the palm of my hand and rubbed the skin off so that my hands were very sore for several days. My attempts were vain in trying to get the dirt out. And finally gave it up and wrung them and hung them out to dry. Having no flat irons to iron them, I took them to Sisters Holbrook and Ripley to get them ironed. When they saw them, they said I had not washed my clothes. I told them I had done my best, and although I had boiled them two hours before washing and had washed them so faithfully I had taken the skin off my knuckles, still I had not been successful in getting the dirt out. They laughed heartily and informed me that by boiling before washing, I had boiled the dirt into them. Close Dang. quote. <laughs> So there's a couple of things here, and I don't want to romanticize the, the domestic duties of women in the 19th century or today, right? I don't want to say, oh, look, this is the women's role, but let's look at a consequence of the patriarchy that gives men and women different roles. And one of them is the men don't know what they're doing. 
right? So Heber, first of all, recognized that women at this point had a knowledge that he didn't have, right? He knew on two occasions, one, he tried to imitate the women boiling, and then two, he tried to imitate the women washing with the, um, I'm assuming these old-timey washboards, right? So the problem with that is he did them both wrong, and in the first case, he boiled the dirt into the clothing, and then in the second case, he skinned his knuckles instead of actually listening to the women. And what this leads to, my conclusion is that, first of all, we've got a problem with uh, the segregation of gender roles. Like, why should your gender have anything to do with laundry? I really think that in a, a, a hundred years, we're going to look back at all this nonsense about, oh, there's two genders, and there's male and female, and there's this and that and this, and this is a bunch of nonsense. Like, we're going to look back at it like we look back at the four humors of um, Hippocrates and Galen, which in this four humors business lasted up until until the 18th century. And even though it hurt people to continue to perpetuate this funny categorization, we did it anyway. And I think that's that's what we're going to deal with in terms of of gender. There's just so many cases where the leaders of God's people are just plain wrong. Yeah. And I wish we would name that. It would it would actually be easier on the leaders if we would admit that. Right. I'm not and out do, to make their yeah. life any harder. It's actually making everything easier, safer, and more responsible if we say, look, our leaders can be wrong from time to time. I can be wrong from time to time. I'm not saying I'm any better than they are. I just have had experiences with which put me closer to the problem than they are, but I'm not, in theory, a better person. Uh, so, so yeah, let's work on this together. We're one body with many parts, all functioning with different roles, and let me play my role. It may not be the prettiest role, but I think naming the fact that our leaders can make mistakes and can actually make major mistakes that hurt other people and not themselves. Well, like I said, um, eventually it'll, it'll hurt themselves with this whole hole in the boat analogy. But yeah, we would be just so much better off if we could say from the pulpit, you know what? Elder Holland is wrong about this and it's way past time he's got it right. Very few people are bold enough to say it that explicitly, but we need to say it. Because if we don't, who will? And it needs to be said, or otherwise there will be grave injustices in the church that our scriptures have built in language that we're trying to prevent. I'm so thankful for the scriptures that it that it testifies to our leaders' weaknesses, not to like poke fun at them and, right, right. and laugh at them and say, Oh right. no, like they're out of times, they're out of they're out of touch, they're out of whatever. But no, but like, it's Yeah. To give them grace, to like let us see, let us exactly. see their humanity. It's exactly. You know? It's in order to glorify God by saying, "Hey, let let's at least admit the problem so that we can fix it." And I think that was part of Heber C. Kimball's problem is he didn't admit that he had a problem. He didn't admit to himself that he didn't know how to do something, and he did not, apparently either couldn't or didn't feel like asking the women what to do. And then he ended up 
causing him some problems. And I think, I've said this before, in our church, we're running on half of our talent because we do not let people of all genders have a role in the decision-making process, the leadership making uh, the leadership process of this church, and the teaching authority of this church. We don't, I can't think of, now yes, we have our Relief Society leaders, and, and I don't want to at all minimize the good work that they're doing, but we, as men in the church, don't seem to let women have teaching authority in the church. And when they do speak up, we don't seem to actually listen to what they're saying. And this is something of which we need to repent because this is exactly the sin that led to the failure of Zion's camp and the failure of the United Order, is people not taking care of those on the margins. Anyway, I could ramble on the, um, on about this for an hour, but I should end there before I think of something else to say. It's all good, man. Great thoughts. Thank you for sharing them. Anyway, before we wrap things up, I want to just remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner, and uh, we want to put you on to them called uh, the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. It features uh, in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring uh, brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, Facebook by searching for Beyond the Block, and also Instagram and Twitter at btblds. You can also find our outline notes at tinyurl.com slash btboutlines. We'll also be putting that in the show notes. It'll also be on our website, too, uh, on the drop-down menu tab. Uh, speaking of uh, those outline notes, I uh, want to give a special thanks to uh, Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson for assembling those uh, outlines. They include not just... Uh, outlines from our episodes but also outlines from faithful feminist episodes mm -hmm. and uh, holy human episodes from the uh, from the exact same week so it's a great resource and a great one-stop shop for you know your favorite podcasts uh, come follow me uh, outlines I also want to give a special thanks to uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show and uh, David Doyle for editing uh, our transcripts also to uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with our uh, social media and uh, mining the best sound bites for us to make uh, and put on our social media pages. Um, the mm -hmm. link to the uh, outlines, as I already said, is going to be in the show notes, and same goes for our uh, transcripts. Did I miss anything or anybody? I don't think so. And I think we already talked about the uh, we already talked about the affirmation conference. Uh, we'll be putting flyers to that in our uh, stories, hopefully, assuming they got flyers out there and uh, any other things. Uh, or events uh, at the Affirmation Conference that we think are uh, you know, worthwhile mm -hmm. to attend. Thank you guys for joining us till we meet again next week. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, and until next week. Bye.